Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know what you believe, why you believe it, or even where you're heading. We're just on a frontier together exploring what's ahead of us. Uh, My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And before we get started today, we kind of wanted to talk about two things. The first is that we have learned a lot about podcasting in the, the few short months that we've been doing this. And we're still trying to figure out our format, but we think we've arrived at something that's probably a bit more manageable and better for people. And that is that we're going to do a topic within an hour. We'll still have our three, uh, three-part structure, but we think within the hour time or hour-ish time of getting that through that whole topic instead of having three hours might be better. We're going to see how that goes today, and that brings us to the second thing that we want to talk about. Our topic is going to be around racism, and uh, we are living in a post-George Floyd world, and uh, it is currently uh, in the middle of September, but both Ryan and I want to take a moment to just recognize a couple of things. Uh, The first is that both of us are pretty white. We have white privilege in a way that uh, both of us will talk about here in a bit, but we recognize that our perspective is skewed based off of our experiences and our our uh, upbringings and our life situation, and we want to recognize that that's uh, true. We also want to recognize that we think it's important for people who are in similar experiences, similar situations like we are, that we can speak into that a little bit, that we can encourage more and better conversation than what Ryan and I can do together. And we recognize that that comes with some difficulties as uh, we don't want to speak for people we can't speak as. We don't want to speak over people that we need to listen to. And we don't want to uh, put burdens on people that we shouldn't be putting burdens on. Right. Um, You know, after George Floyd was murdered, Nate and I talked about this and we weren't sure how to really talk about this subject, you know, and, and one of, one of my first thoughts was, well, gosh, do I know anybody who's black who could come on and talk about it as like a guest, you know? And that right there is kind of an illustration of some of the problems we're going to talk about today, because like, it's not up to other people to educate us, especially in terms of this kind of thing, you know. Um, so what we're trying to do today is speak from our experience as white men, white cisgendered men in the conservative churches we grew up in and in some way or another still exist in and somehow. And we want to look at where things are at and some of the I'll just spoil it for you. Some pretty gigantic problems that we see. Yeah, and we want to recognize that we're going to do so intentionally, but we're also potentially going to make some mistakes along the way. Uh, That's part of living on a frontier, regardless of the topic that we talk about. But it's specifically true or especially true for this conversation because Ryan and I, as we're going to just unpack here in a few minutes, we have very little experience in this conversation because of our heritage and upbringing. Yeah, we, we don't 
We don't always know how to talk about this kind of stuff, but I think that is a huge part of the problem, not just for Nate and for me, but for all of those of us who are white, is we, you know, if we're not the type of people who are denying the problem entirely, we don't know how to talk about it, and so we get afraid, and so we just don't, thereby perpetuating the problem because it never, nothing ever changes, you know? Um, on our side, I mean, we never change anything. We just let it go on as it goes. And so, um, yeah, we're going to do our best. But uh, if you could give us whoever you are that's listening, just get us for a little grace, too, as we not fumble our way through this, but honestly, just explore and do our best to be, I don't even know what the right word is. Respectful doesn't cover it, but uh, we're going to do the best that we can, but we also don't want to let fear of doing it wrong stop the conversation from happening anymore. Yeah, and we are we strive to be learners. So we do have a, a an email address, frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com. If there's something we can learn about based off of what we discuss here, we want to hear that from you. So feel free to email us as you have that grace and patience with us. Uh, also, you know, we're, we're open for correction because we're learning and we want to be better for you and for everyone else that we know in our lives. Uh, we will follow the three-point structure that we have, which is we're going to talk about our heritage a bit. We're going to talk about then how we started to change uh, based off of the deconstruction happening in our lives. And then finally, we're going to talk about where we are and where we may be going So with that said, uh, Ryan, how was racism talked about in your church as you grew up? Honestly, it wasn't very much. And now I need to say that my church growing up was in Ontario, in Canada. And so it is somewhat different in Canada than it is in the United States. That's not to say there isn't racism. Oh my goodness, of course there's racism, right? It's not to say that a black person in Canada doesn't experience a lot, if not all of the same things that a black person in the U.S. does. However, um, I just do need to acknowledge that it is there is there are differences there, right? Yeah. But I think uh, my church growing up was, generally speaking, almost entirely white people. We did, we were in an area that was close to some, well, at least relatively close to some native reservations. So we had a few people in our church who were Aboriginal people, uh, First Nations. And we had a few people who, um, no, I think that's pretty much it because I know we had a few people with Asian heritage, but I think they were Canadian, like born in Canada, you know? So, um, Generally, I don't remember. I, I remember hearing things like racism is bad, right? Uh, racism is a sin, mm-hmm. and you should love everybody the same, and God loves us all the same. And, you know, I remember hearing things like that. But in terms of any kind of full on deep examination of racism or race or any of those things, I don't really remember that taking place very much. Yeah, me either. Me either. I don't think that that was something ever really discussed in my churches. Um, I had three growing up. Uh, We were two in California and one in Michigan. And I can't remember. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just can't remember uh, any conversation around race, any preaching around race. 
There might, of course, have been examples in that preaching every once in a while, uh, depending on certain things. Because, you know, I I grew up and, and Rodney King happened while I was right. alive. So mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that was, at least there's the potential that it was talked about. I mean, some churches haven't talked about George Floyd. So, you know, right. just because Rodney King happened doesn't mean it was talked about. Uh, and like Ryan... Uh, I pretty much had white churches. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot of people of color in any of my churches. Now, when I was in California, we lived in a primarily, uh, well, it was a primarily white community, but there was a Hispanic community there as well. Probably just Mexican, but I, I don't know enough to say because I was too young. But his, certainly Hispanic, um, and you know I'm not completely oblivious. You know we we knew black people, neighbors, friends, so on and so forth, but not really in the church. And the teaching that I received was basically the same as you. Racism is a sin, so don't do it. And um, you know love people as God loved them, and because we're all. His, we're all um, people. Right. I think if it came up, it was always, oh, yeah, that's terrible. But I think just there is kind of illustrative in the fact that it only came up in passing, you know, every once in a while. Maybe something would happen in the news and we'd say, okay, that's bad. But it didn't have to. For us, it never had to be something that was, I think I can say it wasn't that important. Yeah, I I think so. It wasn't. It was certainly wasn't on top of mind with most people that I talked with or <clears throat> worshipped with or heard from. Wasn't something we that naturally would come out. Oh yeah, we need to worry about racial justice. That was never, you know, ready to go. Right. It just wasn't really part of the anything. Not really. So I guess my question, when, because I mean we could stop there and hey, there's our heritage, but let's let's analyze it just a little bit. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that it wasn't top of mind, ready to go for people that were in the churches you grew up in? Well, I think I think there's probably a few reasons. I mean, I think when you when we self segregate right so when we live in communities of people all just like us it's easy or it's easy to not know not or not find out or not look for problems right we just yeah. they don't occur because you know what white folks don't experience the kind of systemic racism that minorities do and so we don't think it happens because we don't know about it you know um, so I think part of it, the reason it never came up was because it never came up in people's lives. Not, not really, you know. And I think, I think the other reason is, I mean, honestly, it's, it's a, it's privilege, white privilege. That's what I'm talking about there. Mm-hmm. We as white people have the privilege of not having to even worry about it. You know, I've never been afraid. Well, I mean, I've been afraid a police officer would give me a ticket. You know, All right, yeah. I, I've never been afraid one would shoot me. And so I think because I don't have to be because that doesn't generally happen. Right. You know, um, and if if a police officer did, they'd get in trouble if they right. shot me, you yeah. know. So um, 
So I think those are the two reasons that come to my mind of like, there was, when I say there was no reason to, there was a reason to, but it, it like in people's minds and lives, there was no reason to because it didn't happen. I don't know if this would be a third thing for you. It's it's certainly one. Of course, we had that too, especially when I was in Michigan. Uh, that was definitely the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a high school that was, I would say, you know, in the 90, 90% of white. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, me too. But in California, it was a bit different. As I said, a Hispanic community, probably Mexican uh, and in California, that's just kind of the culture, right? They have authentic Mexican restaurants, on, although that's not the only reason you can tell. But um, truly authentic restaurants is kind of cool and kind of neat. So you get exposure to a different culture. And then, of course, you meet people through that experience and others. I went to high school with many Hispanic people. And so I think the third reason might be... Uh, it's one of the myths that I heard a lot when I got to the Midwest. They actually had a word for it, but I think it was emblematic of some things going on in California. I'm not sure because I was in California when I was much younger and hadn't had this awareness yet. What I'm kind of dancing around is the colorblind mentality that's oh, supported yeah. by mm-hmm. Galatians 3. Uh, well, so they say. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not really. They support it with Galatians 3. Uh, In fact, I recently saw that they've moved from Galatians 3 to Romans something or rather, because in Romans, it's uh, much more justification language, uh, at least for Lutherans. Uh, (laughs) Naturally, yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) it's like there's neither Jew nor Greek and so forth. Well, Galatians 3 says no... Jew nor Greek nor, or is it Gentile? Whatever. One of those two. Slave nor free. Yeah, slave nor free, man nor woman, and so forth. And so what they use that for is to say, you know, basically all people are loved by God. And therefore, um, you know, it allows people not to pay attention to those differences. So there's kind of like, not only in their own experiences is not happening because of either bubbles of whiteness or um, just where you grew up or where you lived, but also because theologically there's kind of an out for you not to really think about it because, Mm. hey, God loves all people. He died for all people. And in fact, in Jesus, there is no distinction in Galatians 3 language. Well, and I think we should point out too that that colorblind idea was very much in the culture too that wasn't just in the church right like that was what they taught in school in the 90s which is when i was in school you know like even the i don't care how progressive somebody was that was the progressive standpoint right Right. colorblind because we're all the same and we should all be good and kind to each other and um you know obviously now we're seeing the problems inherent in that viewpoint but that was what we were all taught too both in the wider culture and then i think in church we kind of just went with that said yeah that sounds good that makes sense yeah and i didn't i honestly was kind of surprised by it moving from california to the midwest to see it 
actually expressed so openly because mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't expressed openly in in California, at least in the experiences I had. Now, as I just said, I think it was still there, but it was like really openly oppressed or uh, expressed as a really good thing. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm colorblind. It's like, well, and you know, you have like. Uh, the United States has that whole melting pot thing they used to go with, you know, wherever you right. come from, whatever your culture, we all melt together into Americans kind yeah. of idea. Uh-huh. Whereas I remember now, whether it was true or not, it wasn't exactly. But I mean, whereas in Canada, they they reject that and say they have the um, multiculturalism as their approach. Oh, you okay. Know, okay. Because they don't want to have a melting pot because they think now that's what they say now, I don't remember what they said when I was in second grade, you know, um, and you, it's not hard to look at, <laughs> you know, it's different than the U.S., but it's not that different, you know what I mean, yeah. um, in terms of racism and such, so, uh, anyway. I thought that was interesting, I hadn't thought of it that way, like, that reading of Galatians 3 being a, a typically American reading of it mm-hmm. in terms of a melting pot, that yeah. could be what was going on there. Yeah, I mean, I suspect you'd find plenty of Christians in Canada who'd sign right onto that. But yeah, I just mean, right. you know, there is a difference there. But even if there's a difference in philosophy, I don't know that there's that much of a difference in actuality. So as as we said, there's not much here uh, except for the recognition that silence speaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since there's not a lot of conversation around racism in our heritage, I think that that draws attention to a big problem we had, especially as we think about maybe our heritage equipping us for our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And when it came to racism and racial justice, uh, we were not well equipped. And we were kind of out in the world blind, figuring it out as as things happened, right? Right. And, you know, I grew up in a household that was very conservative politically. And so I was hearing a lot of this stuff. This is not necessarily the church, but a lot of stuff that denied these kind of things were even a problem or happening, you know? Yeah. Um, we No one thinks of Rush Limbaugh as a paragon of racial justice, for example. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that too. But yeah, and, and honestly, I think the fact that... <laughs> that we don't have very much to say on this part of it really illustrates the deep problems in this. Like, like you said, I mean, gosh, racism has been a problem in America for 400 years. It's not like it didn't happen till George Floyd, you know? Right. Um, It's not like, I mean, like our parents, well, let's see, my parents would have been, Pretty, well, they've been pretty young, very young, but like my mother was, she probably would have been three, but she was alive when segregation was still a thing, yeah. you know, not yeah. for very long. So I'm just saying like, it's not like there was nothing, like it, it should have been a thing. It should have been something that we talked about. It should have been one of our huge things that as Christians, we tried to um, confront and bring life to, but we never really did. Well, as I said, Rodney King happened during this whole heritage upbringing for both of us um, in recent memories. So, I mean, our, I'd be curious. I don't know, but I'd be curious. Was that like 
Oh, that's an L.A. thing? Is that kind of what they would say? I don't know. But, I don't know. Could be. Uh, anyway, yeah, it does speak a lot. So uh, with that under-equipping that you receive from your heritage, uh, when do you start seeing the problems? As I look, as I think about it now, I think there's been kind of a steady um, progression that, uh, honestly, that finally broke when George Floyd was murdered. Um, but I think a big part of it was when I moved to St. Louis, I was part of a church that uh, it was a newer church that had just been started, I think only a, three or four years ago when I got here, when I or two or three years when I started going there. And the whole reason the church started was because it was trying to be a multiracial, multicultural church, specifically because we're in St. Louis, specifically, um, you know, white and black people together mm -hmm. because um and and uh, interestingly enough when the pastor tried to start the church he went to the district of the assemblies of god that's in this area and they told him no because they said oh it won't work no people try to start churches in st louis in the city and they, they they fail so they wouldn't they wouldn't let him do it and he ended up having to go through a whole separate district that was like a and not anyway, it was a really convoluted thing, which is very illustrative of the very problem we're talking about, you know, yeah. because he said, wait a minute, if because at one point, I don't know if it still does. St. Louis was the. Um, the has the most murders per capita in the country, you know, all this kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. and he said, well, the church shouldn't be running from that. Right. Like, yeah. So anyway, so I think going to that church and eventually being one of the pastors there and forming some really deep relationships with people in this context, both white and black, it really made me learn, like it really kind of smashed a lot of my ignorance. You know, hmm. I remember someone telling me uh, it was a person we were having um, like a, like a small group kind of thing. And she was talking about as a black woman, she has a different voice she uses on the phone than her normal one because she has to use a mm. she has to talk differently in order for people to take her seriously. Yeah. And I didn't even know that was a thing. You know, I heard someone else talk about um, being pulled over for driving while black. <laughs> and I think they were joking and I didn't even know, like, what do you mean? Right. I didn't know. Yeah. I had no idea. Right. So there was a lot of stuff with that that really opened my eyes to. Because, I mean, it was the opposite of the the white mono church that I grew up in, really, is that there were people who had different experiences than me and were graceful were graciously willing to talk about them, you know, um, and 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 didn't mind when I tried to when I asked questions and, you know, wanted to understand. Um And then I think it was just the steady parade of gross miscarriages of justice of from Trayvon Martin to Michael Brown to Breonna Taylor to Ahmaud Aubrey to George Floyd to all the other ones I'm not remembering, right? There's been mm -hmm. so many that I don't even remember all their names. Yeah. And I just and not just the fact that they were killed by police, but the fact that I don't think in uh, some of those are still being figured out, but in uh, most of these cases like whoever it was that that murdered that person doesn't even get punished for it. You know, yeah. they, even if it goes to trial, some of them never even went to trial and some of them that do, they end up getting acquitted. And, um, 
So I think it was, I think George Floyd was finally the one that uh, I think it took all of those things that were um, in there. And I just finally just kind of, that finally was the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, in that I, I knew there was racism, but I think, I think because I was able to do this as a white dude, I think I thought it was just the 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 loony extremists. I thought it was a um, yeah, there are racists out there, but they're not in any way the majority. You know, mm. I, I never said that, but I think that's kind of the conception I had. Um, or at least you were living that way. That was the way I was. Yeah, I don't think I would ever have been able to like articulate it that way to myself. But I mean. There's this skit that Saturday Night Live did right after Trump got elected, and it was Dave Chappelle and I can't remember who the other person was, but the whole point of it was it was a whole bunch of white liberals sitting around on election night, sure that Hillary was going to win, and then just showing their abject despair when, when she didn't. And the whole point of the skit was them like, oh, so you thought America wasn't racist kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, why is this surprising to you? Um, so I think it was... It was all of that for me, and then finally coming to a head with not just that George Floyd got murdered, but the way that he did, right? It was yeah. just, I still, I was telling Nate earlier, I still haven't been able to even watch the video because it's just so horrible, you know? Yeah. So what about for you? Was it a similar story or? Sorry, I was just like thinking thinking about what you were saying. Yeah. Um it's tough. I think, I, I mean, I'm pretty much in the same boat. I had, I had, so white privilege, the way I hear that is just simply, you don't have to do anything. Because your life isn't really that impacted by it. And that's how I was living for the longest of times. Uh, did I think racism was a problem? Well, my heritage told me it was a sin, but that's a different question, right? Is racism a problem means, is it current? Is it something we have mm. to deal with? I mean, sure, it's a problem in that sin is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would answer the same uh, during this time, the transitionary time. I'd probably answer it the same way you did. Yeah, it's a problem for, you know, KKK people right. and neo-Nazis and so forth. And I was not, uh, I'm not saying you were, but I was not naive to think that those people didn't exist because uh, I studied abroad in Germany and we actually ran into some skinhead neo-Nazis mm. as mm. I was doing that because I was in Dresden and Dresden apparently has uh, has a problem with that, or at least the southeastern part of the, the state does in the country. Um, so I, I had real experiences where I could see racism on display or at least the caricatures of racism. So I kind of thought that was where, mm. where it lived. That's a good point though, of like, I'm not trying to in any way detract from how awful and evil like the KKK is, but that's different kind of racism than the racism that we're mostly talking about here. That's overt and obvious and... Um, you know, yeah. Whereas the other kind is much, in some ways, it's more sinister. 
I think, because you don't even like the privilege we're talking yeah. about. We didn't even know it was there. Well, you get these uh, smatterings of it in certain texts. Because uh, I studied German history and the Holocaust was one of those. And, and so what they'll say is, you know, Nazis, of course, are awful. Jews will say that. It's Anyone will say that because they're awful. <laughs> Unless you're a neo-Nazi, I suppose. Um, but they, they had, um, not they. Uh, one of the problems facing Germany at that time were the countless of peop- a countless amount of people who were just not doing anything hmm. because it didn't impact their lives until, uh, forgive me to be a little graphic here, but until the smoke was covering the skies, you know, yeah. it wasn't until then where it's like, oh, this is a little more real. Uh, in fact, there are countless stories of concentration camps in areas where um, it was more urban than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stories there are just like, ugh, how could this happen? And it, as I was studying all that, I was thinking, well, that's because Nazis are obvious, right? That's how I kind of rationalize that. It's obvious when somebody is a Nazi. Uh, and in Germany, I was kind of, I was, the whole education experience I was supposed to have was, well, it's nuanced and it's more difficult than that. And of course that worked, but it still was hard for me to understand that there could be Nazis that weren't Nazis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Who weren't so, overt swastika right. wearing Nazis. And yeah. the other quote that I'm thinking of, it's one going around right now, Martin Luther King, where he's like, the most problematic people right now mm-hmm. are the white moderates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was a white moderate. I, I would clearly say racism is wrong. I, there would be no, like, because of the color blindness, you get that, right? There's no way to well, say Well, you find right. few people who will, who will be like, outside right. of the KKK, who are like, yay, racism. Right. I mean, almost, not, almost anybody will say racism is bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... I had all those experiences, and I think, as per usual, it starts in the brain for me. And one of the big things was around philosophy and the discussions there, because a lot of the philosophy I study is around how systems are kind of in place that are sort of hidden, um, sort of just assumed, uh, like Derrida's binaries of good versus evil or in versus out or uh, his more concrete one, which is ironic, um, Mm -hmm. but uh, writing versus speech and so forth. Those things are just kind of assumed, and it's not until you start to try to see the world that way. That's not quite the right way to think about it, but once you're made aware of that possibility. When you're kind of forced to see the world that way, I think, yeah. Then you start to see the tentacles, if you will, of that system of how it's just everywhere in the way that we talk, the way we do things. Right. Uh, Like the in versus out. It's everywhere. It is Mm -hmm. literally everywhere. You think about generally anything else, anything, you're going to have in and out as one of the metaphors that you're going by. Yeah. And like, you know, like I think for me too, I think about... um, you know, even though I grew up in Canada, my family was very proud of them, their being American, right? That was a big thing for them. Okay. Because my parents grew up here, right? My parents yeah. are, you know, and all that. But anyway, um, like 
we were always taught that America was the shining city on a hill and every man was created equal, which side note, catch right there. Every man was created yeah, equal, right. except for all the men who weren't right. Yeah. Um, like from its very beginning in this most wonderful document of, you know, all of that, like even in the very constitution, it says that people aren't people simply because of the color of their skin, yeah, you know, right. Not to mention women and all of that. So, like, um, I think it's looking at that and saying, "Well, how did I not? How did we not see this? I mean, we've been talking about how we didn't see it, but it just, in some ways, it just seems so obvious." Yeah. Experientially, I then started to. Uh, so I was in St. Louis with Ryan at the same time. You know, when Michael Brown was killed there. And watching that was probably my first real experience uh, with racism. Uh, I remember having a conversation with my wife of talking about systematic racism. It was the first time we ever did it. Well, I remember talking about that with uh, with my wife, and we were kind of wrestling with that. That was the first time we started wrestling with it. I had already made some systematic groundwork, so I was able to talk about it and so we, we started having that conversation, and then, of course, as Ryan said, we started to witness time and time again black people being killed. Uh, with no repercussions. With no repercussions. And I, I, for me, I did watch the full video, and that was, that's still hard for me. Um, George Floyd was the, was the tipping point for me. He was somebody who I've become a, a softy as a parent, um, seeing that parent child relationship, uh, whenever that's powerful, if it's in film and it's exploited, uh, I just start sobbing like crazy. Um, and, to to watch somebody cry out for his mom, um, mm. is just so powerful so human and so devastating yeah and uh, a lot of people are talking about since i'm since i'm a type of person um when i hear something i want to learn when i get activated towards something or whatever i i gotta learn a lot so i've been listening to tons of podcasts and one question that constantly comes up is why is george floyd so different for white yeah. people Right. And of course, we don't have time to talk about it. The answer is really nobody knows right now. Um, it's an, I think it's a fascinating question because it had his death has been his murder has been so different for many white people. Yeah. I mean, I have a few ideas, yeah. but it's it's deeper than we have probably time for. And I don't know that we know. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. But... we just be we just be guessing. So, yeah. Um, but for me, his murder was uh, was a tipping point. I, because I have a platform, I immediately said, uh, "I got to do something about this," and I started doing it. Started talking about it, saying things uh, pretty starkly right off the bat. Um, you know, there was this whole weird thing in the beginning of should we say he was killed or murdered? Um, right. And I'm like, no, just he was I mean, murdered. I mean, watch any portion of that video. Yeah. He, yeah, he was killed, but he was murdered. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, as Ryan was contemplating, I, I'm going to do the same. 
it's it's kind of surreal in a both sad and melancholy way that uh I've only had this experience for 5 months. Yeah. It's I think it's I don't want to say it's good. I think it's just what it is as Ryan said. Um but that was the moment. I remember it very clearly. Um my daughter's birthday's on the 25th, so I didn't actually do anything on the 25th, but it was the next day we watched I watched the video and that was it. That it, it there was a switch. Something mm-hmm. happened. That was it. Yeah. Oh, there was w- one other experience I had that I that I think yeah. was part of it too was so because I work in hospice, I often go visit people at home. And uh one of the places I go is it's not East St. Louis, but it's like right that area, you know? So it's a small mm-hmm. town, maybe 800 people, and it's a, a small African American community, you know. And anyway, I went to see this patient. We've had her a long time. She's a, <laughs> I love her. She's a delight. Anyway, um, and I'm leaving her house and I walk out and a police officer pulls up to me, a white police officer, ironically enough, pulls up to me and says, what are you doing here? You know, yeah. because uh, let's just say I was the only skinny white dude around. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I told him and, you know, and showed him my ID and stuff. Like he didn't ask for it, but I had my my badge on, you know, and, and so it was no problem. Nothing happened, but I left being like, huh, imagine if that happened all the time. And I said, wow, through that entire interaction, I was never afraid. Yeah. Right. Like I somehow intrinsically, I knew I was confused, (laughs) but I knew, oh, as soon as I tell him I'm, uh, you know, I'm a hospice chaplain here to see somebody, it'll be fine. And it was, you know, And so, like, I know that's a very small thing and doesn't in any way approach what black people have to deal with. But it was, honestly, it was that realization of I was never afraid the entire time that really, really did something inside me, you know. Yeah. Because if that were the other way around, you know, who knows what might have happened. Right, right. Well, I mean, we don't have to guess. Right. I mean, look look around. Yeah. We know what happens often enough. Not, you know, too often. The week after George Floyd was murdered, that's when I I went into cuz they had the uh, Blackout Tuesday on mm-hmm. Facebook or social media. I was already doing it, but beforehand I I said, "Okay, that day I'm going to only listen to black voices." And one that came up was a pastor who gave a sermon the week before, and um, he was actually it was somebody else who gave the sermon, and this this black pastor was uh, introducing the sermon, and because of of course George Floyd's murder, he wanted to share his thoughts, and there was a lot there. It was really good. I don't even remember the church. I could find it, but um, he told this story where. You know, he's working for an influential church in the area, the city that he's in, and he's making a bit more money, so he bought a, a better house. I don't know if it's a better house, but just a, a different house uh, that was better for his family, at least. And uh, it was in a primarily white neighborhood. And this was, he is, it was during this time as he's the pastor of this church, and he said, 
I remember as we're unloading our cars, we were waiting for the delivery truck, and there was this car that had a, a white lady in the car, and she was driving by several times, kind of peering out the window. And then the police came, uh, and the police asked him a ton of questions, and he kind of explained what it would be like to be in that situation. I didn't know that kind of stuff. Like, he put his hands up to make sure that right. uh, they didn't see anything, and, you know, they asked questions about his kid, which was odd to me, um, but they did that. And he just explained that, and it's like, you know, when I moved into my house, nobody came over to me. Nobody. Like, And if they had, they would have been neighbors offering to help me move right. in. Right, yeah. You know? Uh, now, my church helped me move in, so maybe that was part of it. But still, I understand the whiteness there that uh, I don't have to worry about that like he did. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so we don't have to imagine at least the, the tamest example of what could happen uh, for a black couple moving into a home in a white neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, the best know? outcome is racist harassment. The yeah. best outcome that happened is that, you know, they were uh, harassed by police for moving into the house they own, right? And we all know yeah. what the worst outcome is. So, right. um, yeah. So, unfortunately and obviously at the same time, both you and I, this is a newer experience for us as we're discovering more, as we're learning more, as we're um, deciding or rather discovering where we're going to have a role in this. Um, how are you doing with that? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you processing right now as uh, you're resting with all of this? Um, so I think... There's a few things that I'm feeling. I think, one, I do feel a lot of guilt. But as we talked about, I can't change what I did or didn't do in the past. So, you know, I'm I'm here now. So I'm trying to not dwell on that, you know. But honestly, I think the biggest thing I feel is, I don't even want to say anger. I don't know. It's fury. <laughs> like, and the reason is, I like I'm even having trouble getting words here, but like we live in a society that um, forcibly made an entire group of people build the whole society for them. Right. As slaves, they did that. And then we pretended that, oh, well, once slavery was illegal, all of a sudden it's not a problem. Any- like it's fine, you know, yeah. and so like and then people are getting murdered and all all of this stuff and i think though because of my especially because of my life in, in the church and my theology i was taught and you know i was taught that the world capital w was this place of evil and so we should expect this kind of stuff in the world because the world is sinful right yeah and yet what I feel all this anger about is that we see the same thing in the church. Um, now I'm, I'm not, but we'll talk about the whole world versus church thing. I guess we did already, but like the point is these people said that you weren't that it's not, it isn't that way in the church because Christians aren't like that, you know? And here we are today and we can't even get 
many uh, white Christians to admit that there is such a thing as systemic racism. You know, like we've got people who leap to defend the police who murdered George Floyd when I, I mean, you saw that video. It's indefensible. You right. Know? Um, and I mean, I am at the point with with this, with white people and special, specifically white evangelical Christians. If you can't even admit there's a problem here. I'm like at the turn the tables over, get out the scourge of cords that Jesus had because like, <laughs> you know, I I think, are we at the reprobate mind stage? <laughs> you know, that, that, that Paul talks about in Romans 1? Like, I'm having trouble putting this in a coherent for, flow of thought here. But what, I, what I'm feeling is, like I said, I feel some anger and guilt at myself. But I also like... I also, like you and I are admitting here that we benefit from this kind of privilege. We're saying that it's terrible and sinful and that um, things need to change. Even if we don't know how, we have to try, right? Um, and if Christians won't even admit there's a problem and won't even try to fix it, then like, where's Jesus in that? I don't see him. I don't, I don't see the gospel in that. I... I see selfishness and I see um, idolatry <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. And normally I try not, I don't like to, I don't like to um, be that direct about what other people are doing wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But honestly, in this case, I'm, I'm done with it. I, I am like the fact that I benefit from a racist system and that I have sure have said and done things that are racist and probably will again in my life, that doesn't mean that I can't say that, like, that I can't point out the evils of racism elsewhere, right? Because Jesus, Jesus would not want things, does not want things the way that they are, right? Like, Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even know what else to say other than the fact that if anyone who wants to call themselves a Christian, I'm going to say it this strongly, if you call yourself a Christian and refuse to try to do anything about this, you're not any kind of Christian that I know. I'm confounded that the battle that Christians, white Christians are having right now is around whether or not racism happens right right and i mean they're standing in the middle of a thunderstorm denying that it's raining well not only that but they're calling it you know a gentle breeze right they're calling it's, it yeah it's how it's supposed to be yeah they are saying that the real problem is that there are a bunch of marxists and other right. stuff going all on all kinds of nonsense yeah right just incompatible like whenever i see when i first saw that now i just roll my eyes and i move on but whenever i first saw that like this is just marxism i i'm like uh you know princess bride thing i don't think you understand what well, that word means yeah. side note even if it is who the fuck cares yeah um but anyway but it's just, it's completely confounding to me. And of course it would be because I react with the brain first and I'm just like, what, what really? Yeah. That's, it's that's like, what you're saying. I don't like, even have words. You know, it's like one of those moments where you just kind of blink for 30 seconds and yeah, walk away because right. what do you even say? 
Yeah, what do you say? What do you say to somebody who says that racism isn't a problem in America? It's like, I am so over trying to argue people, to argue Christians into compassion, you know? To, to, if I have to convince them that they have to think about other people, if I have to convince them that they have to at least try to wonder what it must be like to be someone other than themselves, what do you even say? You can't. I mean, what is there to say at that point? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what there is to say. Uh, I have been, since George Floyd was murdered and uh, I got into some trouble <laughs> locally, um, I've become involved with racial justice movement here in town and across the nation. I'm doing some stuff with people. And uh, I say that not to puff up what I'm doing, but I say that because what I have found, the thing that struck me of what you said, I'm tired of trying to create compassion for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I am much more willing to work with people who have the compassion and want to see a change in this world. Yeah. I am so tired. I got to tell you. Uh, I didn't know it was going to go here. But what I'm tired of, I'm tired of white Christians saying we want a bigger church. I am so tired yeah. of that. And why? Why do you want a bigger church? You're not doing anything with that bigger church. Mm-hmm. You're just sitting around saying how great it is that God takes care of you and you are blind to the privilege that allows you to be that way. Is that the only reason? No, of course God still works, right? We have that passage where he makes the the blessings fall or the mm. rain to fall on the good and the, the just wicked. And the the unjust, time, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to make a, car- uh, a parallel to who's just and who's unjust there. It's just... I know God works no matter the situation, and I know we ought to be thankful for how he works. Yet, why are we so damn concerned about building something that just reinforces and protects our white privilege instead of going out and actually doing something in this world? That is what I'm tired of. Well, I I think it is probably because we like having the privilege. You know, I think what was, I don't know if I'm going to get this quote right, but it was when you have, uh, when you have all the power, um, equality feels like oppression or something like this idea that like, if we give up, like, I mean, if we're human beings, our natural response is not to cede power, is not to try and dismantle things that benefit us. Right. Right. But I would direct people to Philippians 2, where Paul says, <laughs> do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but think of others as more as better than yourselves, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think about Jesus saying, die to yourself. I mean, I could rattle off any number of verses, and it's not going to, I'm not doing that to try and say, see, you people are wrong because the Bible says so, though it does. Um, <laughs> but I just, like, I think... I think that we we enjoy the privilege that we have, and I think and I think the other the other reason is I think some people 
do feel some shame about how things are. And maybe even even if they don't have the vocabulary, they maybe white people even feel some shame about the systemic racism and the privilege that they have. Yeah. But they can't bring themselves to admit that they're complicit in it. Right. That they say, well, I never owned any slaves or I'm not a racist or I can't fix history or whatever it is. Right. 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 And it's like, well, no one's saying that you can, uh, Karen. What we're saying is <laughs> that you have to uh, you have to repent of things that you are doing now or that, you know, you have to work for equity and, you know, you have to give up some stuff that you have and be vulnerable and willing to say, like, things shouldn't be how they are. Like, you're going to have to do the hard work here. And I think a lot of people aren't either aren't willing to do that or they don't know how. And so they just give up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's part of the difficulty, right? Uh, It's living in this tension, living on the frontier. Like it would be so much easier just to write off white evangelicals and say, to hell with you. Um, If this is what, your religion is, I I don't want part of that Jesus because that's not the Jesus I see. And yet, at the same time, I see people who are either afraid, I see people who are trying, I see people who are receptive, they just don't know it, and it makes it a little more complicated. At the do, you, same, do you see a lot of that? I don't see a lot of that. I do see a lot of that. And that's uh, so when you say shame, I immediately go to fear, right? Mm-hmm. People or pain, one of those two. Uh, depends on your experience. Do you, are you afraid of um, probably it's pain, not wanting to experience more shame? Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I see that. I see. So one of the complications is uh, when. When, I mean, we experience this all the time. When we have a certain vocabulary that we use and we're so familiar with it, and then we try to use it with other people and they're not familiar with it, mm-hmm. you get the, you know, glazed eye view. Happens just as simply as this. My wife is in the medical field and she'll use acronyms <laughs> yeah. and, and I just have no clue. Yeah, I work with medical people as a non-medical person, so I, I yeah. understand. You're looking. I can't tell you how many times, and I've said this story publicly, so I can say it here. But when we were first married, and I was going out with the in-laws, it was just like because they're all medical people. And I'm just <laughs> sitting there, like zoning out because uh-huh. I have no idea what they're talking about, and they're all like, "Yeah, yeah," and talking back and forth. I'm like, "I'll just eat my pizza and yeah. think yeah. about whatever." Um, and so I wonder if that's part of what's going on. I think it is because especially in a politicized or a charged conversation like this one, even though it probably shouldn't be, um, in a charged conversation like this, uh, learning that vocabulary is tough. Um, you, wait, sorry. So do you mean that people don't have that vocabulary and so they don't know how to do some of this stuff? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Now, don't mishear me. Certainly there – I mean, I'm – I'm working against people who are who range from being outright idiotic 
Marxist calling people, right? Where you just, you're like, there's no conversation with you because if you, if the starting point is you're a Marxist, then I'm not really going to be able to go very far. Uh, yeah, so I, there's no point. Yeah. Yeah. So I have those crazies, but then I also have very obstinate people that I'm working against. It's like for very simple things like just, Hey, can we, can we agree that racism is wrong? Can we, can we do that? Can we do well, that like formally? The people who won't say that black lives matter because they're like all lives matter. Right. And it's right. like, yeah, but nobody needs to be convinced that your life matters. So there is a good amount of people that fit that bill and everywhere in between. And yet, I have seen, I do see, and I think I have to have hope that there are people who are receptive. And I'll give just a very easy example. In our congregation, when I first started there, um, I had four conversations with people. You, of course, were one of them. Mm -hmm. And and another one was a black Puerto Rican from uh, New York. And... We invited her to chat. This was, you know, before all of this, so probably not what I would do today necessarily, at least not in that way. But she was very open and she wanted to chat and we did. And there were people whose eyes were open. They're like, yeah. I I can't imagine that that was the case. Like, uh, you know, simple things like she had to, simple and terrible, but simple in terms of grasping it. She had to sleep on a bus station uh, well, bench, uh, one night because she didn't have money for a hotel. And it's like, that doesn't cross the minds of middle-class white people mm. because they never get into a situation where they have to be at a bus station, let alone Not without, yeah. yeah. So to have those experiences and then to be somewhat energized or at least receptive to something, I think is still possible. I don't think it's not possible. I, I think that that's, I, I can see that. I think where I'm at and what I'm struggling with is I understand not knowing what to say. I understand certainly not knowing what to do because I think you and I are kind of showing we don't know either. But I think I am not willing to accept anymore. Like that doesn't, and not everybody's doing this, but too many people are saying, well, I don't know, so I'm not going to. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but yeah. that's complicit. Like right. that, And I was complicit for a long time, too, you know, because I didn't know how and I didn't want to, like, do it wrong. So I just didn't. And so um, and maybe that's part of it for me is, like, at this point, it's it's one thing, like, if, if you as a white person don't know what to do or don't know how to help or don't know how to talk about it, okay, right? But that can't be a reason any longer not to because it it should have been long before now, but whatever, especially now that at this point, well, long before, but especially now, if you don't, if you use that as an excuse to just ignore it, then that's just as bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that is just perpetuating the systemic problem. Absolutely. And I, don't disagree. The The word that triggered me was shame. And I, I was moving more towards, um, you know, why would people have shame and then, you know, speak into that fear and so forth. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that most people are going to be receptive. It doesn't mean any of that. It might mean 
after, you know, working in this area for a while for myself, I'll say, you know, this church body, this congregation, this whatever, it's not going to be for me because exactly of what you're saying. It's like, I don't have the energy nor the desire to try to convince people that racism is wrong, that that falls on... I don't know. I think there's like, so I say that and then I'm like, well, what about me? I'm only five months into this, you know, and it's just, I'm not trying to excuse anything. I think it's reprehensible. I think where I was, was reprehensible too. At the same time, how can we help people like me of where I was, like you, where you were? I don't know. I don't know if that's part of the conversation we should have or anything like that, but it's just that's the struggle I'm dealing with in this conversation right now. Well, let me just say when I said people feel shame, what I what I meant was I think that some people do know this is a problem and they in some way do know that they are involved in it or that they benefit from it, you know. And I think some people do feel shame about that. And what shame can sometimes do with some people is it causes them to double down on it rather than change. Right. right? I think when you're confronted with extreme shame like that, you either admit something and try to change or you continue to do and escalate because that seems to be our only reactions. Those are really your only choices when it comes to shame. Yeah. And so that's all I meant is that I think for some people – Somewhere inside, they do realize what's going on, and I think that they do feel shame about it. And then that can, you know, shame is toxic. <laughs> That's why I think God never uses shame, right? Yeah, um, right. Because shame never, Spreads. shame, it seems like we're much, much, much more likely to default to doubling down than to actually trying to change something about ourselves, you know. Um, so that's all I meant when I said shame was okay. that. You know, I don't know if I got that across last time, but well, and that makes sense because I mean, if we were to bring this back into the church, I think that's certainly what's going on. Like, especially with some of the language of you know, the, this is a a friend of mine here in town. He said this isn't a cultural issue; this is a church issue. And what he meant by that, I disagree. But what I what he meant by that, I agree with. If anything. The church should be on the frontier of this. Right. The the what? church should be the place where we already have the language, we already have the movement, and we should be instructing and coaching and helping the rest of this country get through this. And yet we're the ones dragging our feet behind everybody. And that's probably the most charitable way to look at it. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. I think... Yeah. You know, I think that was what drew me to that church I was a part of for so long is that did they have all this figured out? No. Did they know the answers to this? No. But they were sure trying to, to explore it together, you know? Yeah. That, and, and that, like it, like I said before, it should not have been a revolutionary idea for the church to be doing that. I, I mean, oh, we're supposed to be, you know, light, right? We're supposed to be like the whole like. People are supposed to know we're Christians by how we love and live and all that kind of stuff they taught and still teach. And yet it's not what you see. So, yeah, I, I think I think that uh, I don't even know what I think. <laughs> it's just it's just it's just um, 
been really hard to wrestle with this, partly because of my own way I feel about myself, you know, but also because, like you said, there's just so many things that it seems like it almost seems insurmountable. But it strikes me that when you think about like the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? What if the what if the Samaritan had come upon the the, the person and said, "Well, crime's really bad in this area, so I, <laughs> right. I can't yeah. I can't fix it." And I'm not trying to make a joke here, but I'm just saying like I, I think know. that's the approach we've taken. Of, yep. Well, well, can't fix it, won't fix it. What was he doing out in the middle of the night? Right, right. Robbers, you, know, you know, exactly. Uh, like, what was he wearing or whatever it was? And it's just like, that is such bullshit. And yeah. that's not what the Samaritan did either, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so often we let the scope of the problem paralyze us from helping anybody. And you know what? You and me and any of us by ourselves can't solve racism in America. I mean, God, of course we can't. But we can help somebody where we're at we can work to make things better even if they never get to be perfect on earth we can make them better you know yeah we like that's the part that seems to be missing from my experience of conservative christianity okay and that's the shit that's got it we got to cut that shit out that's got to change <laughs> because um that's not what jesus calls us to do Jesus doesn't call us to sit around and do nothing in our, as you said, churches we hope get really big with nice things inside of them, right? No, mm -hmm. I mean, we're supposed to do the opposite of that. And, you know, we're, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it almost seems insultingly simple, but we got to try. Yeah. And I think, uh, both you and I, we've talked about it. That's why we wanted to do this podcast because we have a small amount of people that listen, but I want to end by asking you, if you're listening to this, if you've made it through and you're listening towards the end here, step out, step out and do something. Is it going to be messy? Of course it's going to be messy, especially because I know where most of you are coming from. You're coming from traditions that typically do not do social justice, racial justice, this kind of stuff well, or at all, unfortunately. But I hope that this stirred up or at least pointed to the responsibility that you feel within yourself to do something about it. One of the organizations I work with is called Lutherans for Racial Justice. And they have a fantastic tagline. It just says, Dear Church, it's time. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening to it, now's the time. Now's the time to do something. To educate yourself first. If you're not in this conversation at all right now, educate yourself. They're diff it's not very hard in the age of Google to ask you know, what resources do I need to read to get right. an understanding of racism? And, you know, don't run to the first black person, you know, and tell them to explain racism to right. you, please. Don't do yes. that. Uh, educate yourself. Get involved. Call your local anti-racist uh, organization. You might have to learn a little bit to know what that looks like, but 
chances are you could probably figure it out. If you're a pastor or you're in a, a church ministry setting, I really want to encourage you to, to do something locally that will help, whether that's starting a ministry, that's always tough, but you can do it, or does that mean hosting? I don't know what it means for you. There's tons of possibilities. We really want to encourage you to do that and do that well, um, because it really is time. It's time to do this. Yeah, and you know, for people who are still in or came from my side of the theological Christian world or or something similar, you know, I can't tell you how much I heard about repentance growing up, how central repentance is to the Christian life and how, you know, we should live a life of repentance. Well, here's something that you can repent about, you know, and the thing is, though, is like, we've been so resistant to that, but I was always taught that repentance is such a good, wonderful thing right? That repentance is is what uh, brings us closer to God and the repentance brings healing and restoration and all of this. So you know what? Maybe it's time. No, it is time to do that. And then once you've done that, like Nate was saying, figure out what you do next, because it's also not enough to just say you're sorry, right? It's not enough for people like Nate and me or any of us to just say, wow, this is terrible and it's really bad and I hate it. Great. But you got to do something too, you know? There's something to restoration can't be just about words because, you know, otherwise, if that were the case, all the politicians who've run for office saying they were going to fix this stuff would have fixed it. But the last thing I would say on that is just um, it's okay to make mistakes, you know, like you might not know how to talk about this and maybe you'll say something that isn't the best or maybe you'll fumble around a bit or whatever, but that's okay because honestly, we just need effort, you know, try, do something. You'll learn in that process too. Um, And I think people can tell, you know, you can tell when someone is trying to help, even if they're not being the most helpful. You know, like I think about like <laughs> when kids want to help their parents mow the grass and they've got the little <laughs> yeah. plastic, like, I don't know if that's the best metaphor. All I'm trying to say is like, you don't have to do something perfectly to help. You just got to be willing to learn and willing to do. And it's scary. It is. I, I get that. It's hard to admit these things. It's hard to hard to do these things, but I think that's what we got to do. I really do. I don't know how to take Jesus's words in any other way. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's as simple as that, right? It is time. It's time to do something. Time to work. No longer ought we be standing by. We shouldn't have been standing on the sidelines for, you know, 399 years, if that long, but... We are where we are. We accept where we are. We will work now. If you need any guidance with this, we're, we are under-equipped for this, but you can email us at frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com, and I can point you to some explicitly Lutheran resources if that's something you're interested in, 
or I can give you and Ryan can give you some of the things that have helped us as we've explored this, books we've read, podcasts we listen to, and more. If that's something that's helpful for you, feel free to email us. Again, that is at FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com, and we would be happy to do that. More importantly, we would love to hear your stories of how racial justice, anti-racism work is something that you are doing. If you can share that story with us, we would love to feature them at some point in the future. We haven't gotten a lot of feedback recently for the stories. Um, if we get enough, we'll start featuring those and just... Uh, That'll be one of our episodes. Hey, and you'll take some work off of our plate, which would be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we do truly just want to hear what you're doing, how you're going through this. This is a time for white America to uh, to do the work that needs to be done, but also to work with each other and, you know, and beyond. You know, work with people of color, certainly, and, and more. Um, but if we're just at the beginning steps of, you know, working with each other, we're here to help you in any way that we can. So thanks for listening today. I know it was a bit of a heavier episode than some, but I think it's like we said earlier, it needs to be said and we need to do. And so I appreciate you going with us. And, you know, I also believe that, like I always like to say, we're not alone in this, in that God will help us. I think that the kind of stuff Nate and I are talking about, and we're far from, I mean, we're not exactly revolutionaries here. We're just one of many people who are finally standing up and saying, we can't do this this way anymore. And you know what? I think that's God working in all of our hearts. And so God will help us do this. We just have to be willing to do, you know? So maybe we can all go forward listening to what God would say and and searching for how God would lead in this process of restoration, of repentance, of healing. Um, I think we can trust God, but it's going to take some hard work on our part too. 